I'm thankful God doesn't follow an order of service. You know, we, we plan as preachers, we plan as praise team, and we put together we put together how we want to try to do things, but the Holy Spirit is the one that controls the service. And sometimes he has other plans. And I, I'm I'm glad when he kinda takes over and does a little different. I'm glad when uh I'm glad when he decides that uh you know there's a time to weep and there's a time to rejoice and in all those things we can uh, we can have have the joy of the Lord. And I, I felt him this morning. I felt him this morning since since I got here. And uh, I'm just thankful for I'm thankful for ladies that love one another. I'm thankful for for men that love one another. I'm thankful for a church that loves one another. Are we perfect? No. We fall short in many ways, as individuals and as a church. But I'll tell you what, I know without a shadow of a doubt that this church loves Jesus. And I, I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful to, uh, to a church that, that stands on His Word. We might not be the biggest church in Hamilton. We might not have all the programs that some other churches have. But we have Jesus. And we have His Word. And that's enough. That's enough. God can take that and He can take folks that are willing to surrender their lives and their hearts to follow Him. And He took 12 men and turned the world upside down. I can't imagine what He could do with 50, 60, 70, 80, however many people's here uh, that really want to serve Jesus in their life. So let's continue to worship God today. Uh, let's continue to pray for many needs. Uh, my heart is certainly heavy today, but not discouraged because I know, as Caleb said, I know where Gary is. Uh, I know that he's not suffering anymore. I know where Dave Ratliff is, and uh, I know where many other believers are. But what my heart is burdened about is I also know people that I don't know where they would go if something happened to them today. Maybe it's you in this room. Maybe it's somebody watching online. In your heart, you know that you've not gotten things right with God, that you don't have a relationship with Jesus. And my heart is doubly burdened for you today. So I pray that by the end of this service, you would consider the great love and cost that Christ paid for your sins and that you would turn from them and turn to him today. So as we begin, I'm going to read from Psalm 86, and we'll take a moment to just continue to ask God to be with us and visit with us in this service and cleanse us of sin and anything else that we need to ask him for today as we begin. Psalm 86, uh, verses 1 through 5 says this, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for, you, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good. Church, say amen. Church, he is good and forgiving abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful today that we can call on you anytime in any place. We don't have to wait for an altar call or an invitation. We don't even have to be in a church building. We can be driving in our car or in our living room or out taking a walk. Uh, you are omnipresent, Lord, and you are constantly with your people and in your people through the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, today I'm thankful that you love us, that you minister to us, that you care for us, you care about the minutest details of our lives. Lord, and nothing is too big for you and nothing is too insignificant 
to you. And so, Lord, help us today uh, as we seek to worship you in spirit and truth, Lord. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Uh, challenge us, convict us, encourage us, whatever is needed, Lord. And we'll give you thanks for everything that you will do and everything that you've already done in our lives and in this place today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter as we continue there. Uh, we've been in there now for going on about seven weeks. And as we hit the third chapter, things will begin to pick up, at least on my end, a little bit faster now. Uh, we'll take larger chunks of Scripture and kind of look at them. Uh, we've reached a point, and really this entire epistle is a lot of practical advice. There are some doctrinal points, obviously, in it, but a lot of practical advice on how to apply those doctrinal things. And if you've noticed, a lot of my messages have been titled Godly Living or How to Live a Godly Life or whatnot because it's just practical living in holiness. And so today the title of the message is Godly Living in the Home. Uh, all of us have needs to better understand how to be uh, a better husband, a better wife, a better father, a better mother, or maybe you're not married. How do we endure this single life and thinking about a spouse? Or maybe you've come out of a tough relationship and how do you navigate that? So some practical advice today for living in the home. And we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. And I'll ask one final time if you're able to stand with me and we'll read this together. And then we'll, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7 says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for everything that we have that comes from your hand. Pray that you will now bless this service, bless the reading of your word and the preaching thereof. Uh, just anoint it and move according to your will and purpose, and we give you thanks once again in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There was a account given in the Guinness Book of World Records. This was from about 15 years ago, so I don't know if this is still accurate or not. But it said that at that time, Percy and Florence Aerosmith held two records. They were the longest married couple, 80 years, and both Mr. and Mrs. Aerosmith had the largest combined age together. So putting their ages together exceeded anyone else. And it it said in this article that they left good advice for those who wanted to have a lasting marriage. Mrs. Aerosmith, Florence, she said that her advice was, you must never go to sleep as bad friends. If you've had a quarrel, you make it up. And never be afraid to say, I'm sorry. 
Mr. Aerosmith, Percy, his advice was much shorter and to the point. He said he found the secret to a lasting marriage was two words. Yes, dear. <laughs> and so it sounds like he had a lot of wisdom because I've, I've tried to learn that too. The Bible, however, gives us more than just advice. It's God's word. It's God's instruction to us on how to live the Christian life. And in this sense, in this text that we're looking at today, it is how do we live in this covenant of marriage together when two become one flesh. We've looked at some things in Peter's letter, and these themes reoccur all the way through it. One of those things is holiness, God's holiness, and in turn, our personal holiness as we seek to be like Jesus. So that's the theme that we've seen a lot of, a theme that we will see again and again, and we've already touched on it, is suffering. It's, it's amazing how much Peter has to say about suffering because as believers, we will suffer, and we do suffer. It's unavoidable for us, but it does not have to define us, and it does not have to ultimately defeat us, and it cannot ultimately defeat us as followers of Christ. And another point that he makes continually and one that we need reminded of is that this world is not our home. We are simply pilgrims and sojourners in this life. So we shouldn't get too attached to the things of this world. And he reminds us of that. Now, with that being said, today's message will be one that is absolutely countercultural to the way that most folks live their lives. And I'll go so far as to say it's countercultural to even how a lot of Christians live their lives in the covenant of marriage. And so when we think about this message today, I expect for some of you, at least internally, you may not say it, but you're going to disagree with some of the things that I say. And I just want you to understand, I don't stand up here and give you my opinion. I'm standing up here, and to the best of my ability through the Holy Spirit, I am trying to give you God's Word and the interpretation thereof. And so if, if the things that I say today fly in the face of what you believe, I would greatly encourage you to not just say, well, I disagree with you, Pastor, and go on with life. I would cause you to study these things deeper today, to get into God's Word for yourself, and just with an open heart say, could the pastor have been telling me the truth? Could what he said be, in fact, what God expects of a marriage and a godly home? And if you'll do that, I know that God will lead you to the truth. He will show you uh, if what I'm saying is, in fact, correct or if it is not. And so when we, we read our text today, it's really important for us to, again, consider the historic context of it. Remember, he, he goes into the first six verses speaking to wives, and then the final verse, he speaks to men. And you may think, well, that's already unbalanced and unfair. He said all these things to the ladies, and he had one verse for the men. Why is that? Well, part of it is because in the cultural setting, the wives and the children were property right? It, whether it was in the Greek culture or in the Roman culture, women and children were property. They were owned. And so they didn't have a voice. They didn't have a say. If you were married to the man, his religion was your religion. You didn't get a vote. You didn't get to pick what church you went to. Whatever God or gods he worshipped, that was yours. And you, if you didn't like it, he could write a bill of divorce or worse for you. And so you pretty much had no say. And yet here comes Peter and here comes Christianity giving women and children worth, 
giving them value, giving them a voice, if you will. And this would have flown in the face of culture then, but it also flies in the face of culture now. Not in the sense that women need a voice. In a lot of ways, the feminist movement has given women a voice in a wrong type of way, and it has elevated women into a role that God never intended for them to take, and it has diminished the man's role in the home to where they have kind of taken a, a secondary role and not been the leaders. And so we see so much trouble in the home today because the biblical pattern has been forsaken for this worldly way of living, and it's all upside down. And we see the effects of that with single-parent homes and with all the other issues that we, we see in today's culture here in America, the divorce rates that we have and whatnot. And so it's important to understand that uh, the Word of God is giving us the instruction that we need to live a godly life. Will we obey it? That's the question, because these things are going to challenge you, I believe. At least some of them will. And uh, I hope that you will allow God to examine your heart and to work there if, it, if He needs to. So I'm not really necessarily going to go through verse by verse expositorily today. I will hit on some things, but I want to give you some precedents some biblical precedents about marriage because there's so much we could try to fit in uh, into a short time. And so I want to give you some of these things to consider. The first thing I want you to see in verse 1, and he talks about wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Again, in the culture, it was expected whatever the husband was, the woman was just going to go along with things. So Peter is saying, listen, if you are both married and you are unbelievers and the wife gets saved, she is to live out her Christian life and not forsake the Lord, but still honor her husband who is an unbeliever. That's in a nutshell what verse 1 is saying. She is not to leave him. She is not to disrespect him. She is to live out faithfully her Christian life. And even if she doesn't verbalize it as much, she should show it by the conduct of her life. He should see a difference in her because of Christ and through her love, her forgiveness, her patience, her kindness, all those things, even with a difficult husband who might not be a believer, that ultimately could point him to Christ and lead him to Christ. That is what it is showing. But the precedent that I want to give you, the first one, number one, is this. The Bible never permits or encourages a marriage covenant between a believer and an unbeliever. The Bible does not ever say it is okay if you are a believer and you are interested in an unbeliever for you to enter into a covenant of marriage together with that person. The, in verse 1, it was two unbelievers. One got saved in the marriage, so they were already together, and then one got saved. But if you are saved today and you are dating or looking to be wed to an unbeliever, you are outside of what God's Word for, uh, gives to you to be able to do. I, I won't marry. If someone comes to me and they're a believer and they want to marry an unbeliever, I won't, I won't officiate the wedding. That's just something that I have always made it a point to say. I will marry two folks that are not believers. If I counsel them and, and come to the place where I feel that I can do so, I will certainly marry two believers, but I will not marry uh, a believer and an unbeliever. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 6.14 to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? And so we have to understand that the Bible tells us clearly 
if on that foundational level you are a follower of Christ and you plan to join together with someone who isn't, you're, you're starting off on a, a horrible foundation. You're starting off in a place where you're not going to be able to agree on the most important facts of life. Who is Jesus? How do we follow and serve and glorify and honor Jesus in our home and with our children and in our lives? Now, obviously, love is a very strong emotion. And so when you, uh, over the years, especially when I was a youth pastor, I would have the kids in youth class who professed to be believers, and lo and behold, every once in a while, they'd come in and they'd plop down on the couch and there'd be some new boy or some new girl sitting next to them. And we'd talk a little bit, and then we'd do our Bible study, and I'd talk to them after, and come to find out a lot of the time, most of the time, that boy or that girl that plopped down on the couch next to them wasn't a Christian. Were we glad that they were at church? Absolutely. Were we glad that they were willing to come? Without a shadow of a doubt. But as these kids started to, you know, get closer to 18 and getting out of the home and started, you know, they're, they're doing the dating thing and all that, I would always hear these objections when we talk about the fact that you're a believer and you have this unbelieving person that you say you want to get serious with, uh, and the Bible forbids that. And the answer would be, but, but I love him. I love her, right? Love is a very strong emotion. And so a lot of times we love certain things. Let's be honest. We love our sin too, don't we? I mean, what, what pulls us away from Jesus is our sin. And why does sin pull us away? Because at least at that moment, we love our sin more than we love Him. And so you may love that person on the couch next to you, but that doesn't change. There's no clause in here that says, don't be unequally yoked unless you really love that person, then it's okay. It's not in there, right? And so you have to, you have to set aside the emotional side of things and say, what does God expect for my life? What does God want for my life? Who does God want me to be married to? What does God want for a marriage and for my home? The other objection I heard a lot was, well, yeah, I know the Bible does say that, and that's true, but I really believe I can change them. I really believe that I can change them. They love me. I love them. They'll change for me. They'll change for me. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin color or the leopard his spots? then also you can do no good who are accustomed to do evil. You can't change your own heart. I can't change my own heart, let alone somebody else's. I struggle enough to do the things that I need to do. You really think you have enough power to change somebody else's heart and make them do what you want? You can't make somebody be a follower of Jesus. They must be born again, and that's his job, not yours. And so I'm not saying that a marriage can't work in, in the secular sense if an unbeliever and a believer get married. We know that there are folks that have done that and that at least externally, they, they, they have the job, they have a house, they have all those things. I'm not saying that you're destined for all kinds of, of secular problems, if you will, but in the long run, you cannot live a Christ-honoring uh, way of life in that union. And so, ultimately, I've never seen it be where the believer elevates 
or brings the, you know, the unbeliever to a higher plane because it's not a Christian. But what I do see over and over is the believer get pulled down. I see the believer get pulled down. I've seen so many times where faithful men or women get married to a non-believer and as time goes on, you see them less and less at church until they're gone altogether. You see them get caught up in the world. You see them get caught up in other things. The husband doesn't want to get up and come. So guess what? If, if the wife wants to go to church and the husband doesn't and there's kids involved, which one are the kids going to do? What do the kids want to do? They want to get up and come to church. They want to stay home, sit on the couch, and watch cartoons with dad. Which one's going to win? And so eventually the mom or dad gets frustrated, throws up her hand and says, well, I'll just stay home too. And there you go. Don't be unequally yoked. Then it says in verse 2 that the ladies are to be respectful and have pure conduct. Here's the second precedent I want to give you. This one I think I'll probably get a lot of objections. Young people, I hope you'll listen to me even if you don't listen to me. I hope you'll hear what I say at least and, and consider it. And parents, I hope you'll follow up and talk to your kids about this. Almost all of what passes for dating today is unbiblical. I didn't think I'd get a lot of amens. But the fact is, almost all of what passes for dating today is unbiblical. Vaudi Bauckham said this. He says a lot of great things. I want you to think about this. He said, modern boyfriend-girlfriend culture, which is what we see today, is glorified divorce practice. It's learning how to give yourself away to people repeatedly and then take yourself back. He's not wrong. Because today, we, it's all about, well, we've got to play the field. There's a lot of fish in the pond, and we've got we to gotta go fishing and try different ones out, right? We've got to test the water. Because ultimately, when we are dating, or the mentality today is, I'm looking for that person that meets all my expectations. I'm looking for that person that checks all the boxes for me. I'm looking for certain criteria and I'm not going to settle until I find the person that meets those needs. That is not a life of sacrifice and service that God calls us to. That has nothing to do with us becoming the person that we need to be in Christ. That is looking at a buffet and trying to figure out who is best to meet my needs. Hebrews 13.4 says this, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Today, in the dating scene, Netflix and chill is what everybody talks about. And if you don't know what that is, I'm not going to tell you in church. You can go look it up and figure it out what it means for yourself. But it's not what God wants out of your dating relationship. I can tell you that. Okay? But here's the problem today. Folks in the church, professing Christians, have absolutely no problem moving in together and testing the water before they get married. And, I, and listen, and this is one of the places where I, I will wholeheartedly say that we are hypocritical when we jump up and down and amen when the preacher talks about homosexuality, but we, we hide our faces and we, we bite our tongues when we have no problem having sex outside of marriage, living together with our boyfriend and girlfriend and think that's totally permissible to God because he hates those gay people, but he's okay with us. We're hypocrites. We need to repent of our sin. God will deal with their sin. We'll speak the truth and love to them. 
But we need to clean up our own house, or rather have God come in and do some cleaning in our own house. Because here's the thing. Modern dating, like I said, is about finding the right person. I'm going to check all, all these different ones out until I find the right person. But biblical dating is be the right person. Work on you. Let God shape and mold you so that you become a godly man or woman. And if he's doing that in another godly woman or man's life, hopefully you two will come together. You've been working on one another. You've been working on yourself. She's been working on herself or himself. And then you don't need to worry about checking the boxes for somebody else. You've done what you need to do for you, and they have done what they need to do for them. Modern dating says that intimacy needs to precede commitment. Got to make sure that we're compatible. Got to make sure that everything works together well before we commit. Right? Biblical dating says commitment comes before intimacy. We wait. We save ourselves for marriage. We don't just go and, and just try everybody out until we find somebody we like. Modern dating has recreation as its goal. Biblical dating has marriage as its goal. Now let's be honest. Most of the time, kids start dating parents. And again, I sound like I'm picking on you, and I'm not. But parents, you most of the time, you let your kids date way too young. I'm just going to be honest. Mar the goal of dating is to find a wife or a husband. Probably not happening when they're 10. Probably not, not, probably not happening when we're 12, right? They don't need to date when they're that young. Because just like Vadi says, all it is is you're, they, they got a new boyfriend, girlfriend every other day, and you're just teaching them, well, you don't like that one, throw it away and get another one. Don't like that one, throw it away. And then they take that right into their marriage life. Well, this didn't work. Divorce, give me another one, right? The goal of dating is ultimately to find a godly man or woman in your life that you can be wed together with. So then he goes on in verses 3 through 6, and he gives an example of Sarah with Abraham and how she obeyed him and honored him. And the third point I'll give you is this. Don't plan your marriage after the world's blueprint. Don't plan your marriage after the world's blueprint. There was a story that was told about uh, an umpire who was umpiring a little league baseball game and, and if you've ever been to them it can get pretty hostile with the parents and the bleachers sometimes and this mom was just on this umpire I mean every call was wrong and she's yelling and, and on this guy and finally she yells at this umpire and she said if I was your wife I would feed you poison and he'd had enough and he took off his mask and he turned around and he said if I was your husband I'd take it And so a lot of times when we think about it, you know, that, that can be the way that the world, the world loves that drama. They love to see that. But on the other flip side of things, doesn't the world, a lot of times for us, it paints this fairy tale picture of marriage. I, I say it all the time that that's one of the things that social media does negatively for us is we see pictures all the time of all these wonderful events, and I enjoy seeing those things. It's great to see people on vacation. It's great to see people in love. It's great to see people happy. Uh, you know, there is the drama on Facebook that we don't love to see that stuff, but most of the time people are posting good moments. But when you scroll through that for hours on end and you're having a bad day, the flesh and the enemy is going to say, boy, their marriage is great. 
they got to go on vacation. They bought a new car. Look how nice their house is. Look how pretty she is. And before long, you think that all those pictures, everybody else has a story, a fairy tale, you know, perfect story, and you're the only one that doesn't. And you start to feed into those things and believe those things. Then we have uh, reality TV, you know, and they have these shows on television, The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, and they put all this stuff on there, and all these people, and they're so beautiful, and they're in love, and it's going... They get to go to exotic places together and they get to try one another out and see if it's good and, you know, they get the ring and it's just, it's just so pretty and so beautiful and we think, man, that's, that's what I want. That's what I want to do too. And, you know, it's just a false image of what life is really like. That's not how it works, guys. I think if you've been married for more than, you know, Charlie and Brittany haven't been married two days and I think they've probably figured out it doesn't, doesn't go that way all the time, Right? And so we have to understand you don't plan your marriage after the world's blueprints because not only does the world paint a false picture of how things will always be rosy, it also paints the false picture of how you deal with those things when things aren't rosy. When you find out that they're not so good, then we watch shows like Divorce Court, right? Then we have, we just watched The Bachelor last night and saw how good it was. Then the next day we're upset, so we turn on Divorce Court so we can see how we can get rid of this bum and find somebody else, Right? And so we, we, we get the wrong idea about it, and then we get the wrong answer to how to fix it. And it's all messed up, but we look to the world so much. And Peter uses language that is countercultural. Submit, be humble, be respectful. Man, those aren't words that we use very often, is it? But we need to come back and revisit those things in our lives and in our marriages. We need to be respectful. We need to be humble. We need to serve one another. We need to stop having so many expectations about our spouse and focus on what we need to do and who we need to be. Keep internalizing these things. Stop always projecting what you want on your spouse because they're imperfect. And you know what? If marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, Jesus loves imperfect people because that's all there is. And your spouse will always be imperfect. And you love them nonetheless. You love them through their faults because you have faults of your own. You love them through their struggles because you have struggles of your own. You, sell, you show them grace because Jesus has shown you grace over and over again. And so finally, then after he talks about the wives, he comes to verse 7 and we'll wrap up with that. And I'll give you another precedent and I'll shift gears towards the men as Peter does. And the fourth precedent is this. Men have a God-given role and responsibility in the home. And I'll say a step farther, for a lot of us, we have fallen short with that as men. The role that God has given us is vital. The responsibility that we have is important, and we shouldn't push it aside, and yet many times we do. Let's look at that verse. We'll look at this one a little bit closer. He says, live with your wives. Literally, that's a sexual term. Have intimacy with your wife. But it goes beyond just the sexual union to all aspects of the home. Have a closeness. Let me say this. Men, you play a vital role in being really the glue that holds the home together. And yet, for so many, the homes are existing with single-parent mothers trying to take care of the kids or fathers that are largely absent because you decided that you need to work 80 hours a week 
to have your boat and your, your campground and all this other stuff. Kids don't need more things. They need you. That's the problem today is we have bought into the, and I, to go back to my last point, the world's blueprint is spoil your kids rotten. Give them everything possible. Make sure that when they're three they have an iPhone. When they're five that they've got, you know, the newest Xbox. When they're seven, you know, I mean, it's just insane what we do and how much money we feel like we, and how much debt we have to go into to do these things. It's okay. Look, I'm going to pick up my daughter. She loves it when I do this. She was the oddball because she was the only kid that didn't have a cell phone and an iPhone and all that stuff. I don't even know how old it was, but she didn't have it. And I wasn't popular for that decision, but I was okay with that. Because here she is today, and she survived. She's got an iPhone now, and it all worked out. But she didn't need one when she was 10. She just didn't. There's no, nobody that is that important that she needs her own iPhone to text and call at 10 years old. So, you know, I go back to saying that, men, you are the ones that hold the home together. You need to be present. Your wife needs you. Your kids need you. And you have got to say, this is my ministry first before anything else. My home is my ministry. I love this church. I'm thankful that God's called me to pastor. And I have failed at this, and I really failed at it early on in ministry. But my home is my first priority. And I need to be there for them, and I need to do a better job of being there for them before anything else. Because God created the marriage in the Garden of Eden before the church. And I need to always remember, and you need to remember as men. Um, and then he goes on and says, not only do we live together with them, but he, he then says that uh, live with your wives in an understanding way. That means to be considerate, be sensitive of our feelings. And this is where communication is so important because men and women are just wired different, right? We all know that for the most part. Men are, men are usually see a problem, get to fixing it. Women are analytical. There's a problem. Let's Google it. Let's, uh, let's call our friends and, and have them come over and look at it. Uh, you know, let's, let's not jump into a decision. Let's take our time. And then when the man tries to take our time, the women get on us because it's taken three years for us to finish a project. You told us to take our time, and then you get mad at us when we take our time. I can't figure that out. But we need to be sensitive towards women. We need to learn our love languages. I'm big on that book, the love languages. We need to understand how we communicate. Not everybody speaks the same love language. And we need to know what that is and be able to communicate to one another with that. If you're a country music fan, you might remember a song from probably 20 years ago now by a guy named Ty Herndon. Uh, and the song was What Mattered Most. And the song goes like this. I'm not going to sing it, but I'll read a portion of it to you. It says, I thought I knew the girl so well. If she was sad, I couldn't tell. I missed the point. I missed the signs. So if she's gone, the point is mine. I know I know a whole lot of little things. And even though I confess them one by one, she would still be gone. And then the chorus says, Her eyes are blue, her hair is long. In 64, she was born in Baton Rouge. Her favorite song is in my life. I memorized her every move. I knew her books, her car, her clothes, but I paid no attention to what mattered most. We need to move beyond the superficial things and truly get to understand our wives on a deep level. We need to know what makes them tick, and we need to minister to them in love as best that we can. 
He goes on and says, show honor. That could literally be chivalrous. Treat her with courtesy. Treat her delicately. Now here is the thing where, again, I think our culture, we have seen men that have become so immature. And here's a problem with the culture of pornography today that is so rampant that women have simply been become objects. Women are nothing but an object to gratify us sexually. And when you look at that type of mentality, women aren't treated with the, the dignity that they deserve. She's not your old lady. You shouldn't go around and call her that. Treat her with respect. Treat her with honor. You didn't call her your old lady, I, I doubt, when you were dating. So don't call her that now that you're married. She's still precious be just because you put the ring on your finger now doesn't mean that she's still not precious. Treat her with respect. And then he goes on and says, because she's an heir with you. The Bible says that there is no male or female when it comes to the salvation and the promises of God. She's an heir with you. She is part of this thing called the kingdom of God. Men, you have a role to carry out. You are the spiritual leader of your home. And I know, I understand, many men feel inadequate to do that. It's not just that all of you are lazy bums and you don't want to do it. Some of you have struggled to do it because you just feel inadequate. Some of you just are exhausted and you're so tired that you don't even know where to begin to try to take on yet another responsibility. But like I said, you've got to prioritize and this has got to be number one. And if, if you feel inadequate, welcome to the club. Not just to be the spiritual leader in your home, but we're inadequate for a lot of things, folks. That's why we press into Christ. That's why we lean on Him. He's got to be our strength. And listen, you've got to start somewhere. You have to start somewhere. He says, do all this so that your prayers be not hindered. Let me ask you this, men, since he's speaking to the men primarily, do you pray? Do you even pray at all? Because it is important as the leader of the home that you need to set the example for your wife and for your kids. Do you take your wife and your kids by the hands and pray with them? Do you go and tuck your child in at night and kneel down by their bed and pray with them and teach them to pray? You are setting the tone for your house. You are the thermostat that adjusts the temperature. Is it cold or is it hot in your home for Christ? We have got to do better, men, and we can. I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm trying to encourage you. I don't always get it right, and neither do you. But we can strive to do better, and we can encourage one another in that. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's a high standard. But that's the standard that we strive for. We're probably never going to hit that perfectly this side of glory. But we're going to keep striving for it. And so as the praise team comes and as we give an invitation, I'm going to ask you a question, several questions, or things to consider at least. Do you have a godly home? If you're really honest, would you say that you have a godly home? Are you doing your part to assure that your home is godly? Not... Don't say, well, my house would be godly if it wasn't for those heathens down in the basement. If I had to have all these little heathens running around, I'd have a godly home. If, if this man of mine would shape up, I'd have a godly home. So if that woman of mine quit nagging me, I'd have a godly home. We're not talking about the other folks. I'm saying, are you doing your part to have a godly home? Are you doing your part? God will let God work on them. Are you doing your part? You can't change your spouse. God can. Look to Him and trust Him. Maybe you do have a godly home. Praise God for that. Well, you should rejoice if you have a godly home. 
But there's other folks that don't. And they need your example. They need your advice. They need your encouragement. Charlie and Brittany just got married. Caleb and Faith are going to be getting married. If you have a, a long, healthy, fruitful marriage, pour into these young folks. Give them some advice. Give them some encouragement. I'm sure that you wouldn't turn that away. If someone came and said, Caleb, here's, I, I want to tell you how some advice maybe help you be a better husband. Praise God for that. These folks need that. Well, that's how we encourage one another. And if you're just struggling, if your home is a wreck, the altar is open today. Come and seek God's face and say, Lord, help me to do what I can do to have a godly home, to be a, a wife that submits to my husband, to be a husband that loves my wife as Christ loves the church. Whatever that need, God can do it for you today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the covenant of marriage. We thank you that you allow us to enter into that, Lord. And some of folks today may be going through a season of singleness, Lord, and that can be difficult. We look around and we see couples together and we wonder why we don't have that opportunity. Lord, I pray for those as well uh, that you would strengthen them and, and not let them just give in to the pressure and just pick someone just to uh, have a partner, but that they would wait patiently and faithfully for you to provide. And in the meantime, they would work on their relationship with you. God, as we give this invitation, Pray that you would just continue to move in the hearts of those and the needs that we have in this church and beyond, that you would uh, help us to be better husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, uh, and ultimately that we could do all these things for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As we stand and as we sing, if you need...